0: running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linocom slash javascriptjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of my JavaScript story. This week, we're talking to Jeremy Lickness. Jeremy, do you want to say Hello.
1: Hello, this is Jeremy. I'm in freezing cold Atlanta right now.
0: Ah, nice. I'll be in less freezing cold Atlanta. I hope it's less freezing cold when I'm there uh, at the end of the month. So
1: nice. Well, yeah. enjoy enjoy your visit. I'll probably be somewhere else when you're in town, but
0: <laughs> probably <laughs> I
1: got got a heavy travel schedule ahead for this year.
0: Yep, makes sense. Now you work for Microsoft, and we had you on a bonus JavaScript Jabber episode. Um, that Microsoft set up for us. We talked about web apps on Linux. That sound familiar?
1: That sounds very familiar. I I enjoyed that. That was a a fun talk, uh, especially just circling around. I think a lot of JavaScript developers don't realize how much Microsoft is is doing to support the platform, whether it's Node, JavaScript in general, and and the tools there. So it was great to, to talk about some of that support.
0: Yeah, and we seem to have been covering a lot of um, Microsoft stuff lately. And I'm I'm really hoping people are getting the picture right, just exactly what Microsoft is out there and being involved in. Um, of course, I think a lot of people also just don't realize how much of the stuff they use every day comes out of um, Microsoft, be it their contributions to Node.js. Uh, they employ a number of people like um, John David Dalton, who wrote Lodash. They you, you know, you you folks also employ um some members of the Webpack team and other folks. Um John Papa, who is a regular on Adventures in Angular on, on our show. Um, you know, he works there. there's uh, just a lot of folks over there. Um Sarah Drasner, who's on the Vue JS team. She, you know, core team, she works at Microsoft. So lots of lots and lots of people that you probably have either heard of or used software that they've written work at Microsoft. So, yeah, it's it's an awareness thing, but it's also just, oh, just pay a little bit of attention and you're going to figure out pretty fast that Microsoft is involved in some pretty awesome stuff.
1: Yeah, I actually get to work with John and, and Sarah pretty closely on on my team. We're all what's called cloud developer advocates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you yeah, know, it's amazing because they've come on board and really have this passion and focus of meeting the JavaScript community where they're at, right? So making the changes necessary on our end to facilitate the experiences people are looking for uh, on the end of the community. So it's pretty exciting.
0: Yep. Um, just to throw another name out, your episode comes out right after Donovan Brown's. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> the legend.
0: Yeah. So anyway, it's it's just been fun to get to know people over there, too. And of course, we've had Scott Hanselman on some of the shows as well. So. Um but yeah we 're here to talk about you, not them so uh let 's go ahead and dive in and kind of capture your story um now the the Microsoft folks that i 've interviewed has been kind of interesting because usually there's like a JavaScript angle and then there 's some other aspect of things so for you it's it's Azure and cloud and uh Docker and all of that great stuff. And with you know with Donovan, we were talking about processes and DevOps, and so it's it's just it's interesting to kind of get this angle and go, okay, so let's talk about JavaScript. Now let's talk about the other thing that you're awesome at. But let's go back even further and talk about how you got into programming.
1: Sure, you know I I look at my introduction to programming almost in in three phases. There there was a phase when I was really young. In fact, uh, up until about the age of seven, I wanted to be an astronaut, <laughs> and uh-huh. then. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a funny story. I'll keep it kind of short. But I, I had a major sunburn that kept me home alone with uh, the TI-99 nine four a personal computer we had at the time. There were no games available. That everything a on old our, machine. <laughs> yeah, very old machine. And I, I literally had no games to use. So I taught myself, I pulled out a manual, taught myself how to type in this program that was literally called Bojangles, and it made this little dancing pixel move across the screen. And after seeing that, I was just hooked. It was like magic. I couldn't believe that. I conceptualized something like that, typed in a few commands, and it worked. So I went on from there to the Commodore 64, Mm -hmm. where I was introduced to assembly and machine language. And what was really unique about my time with the Commodore 64 is, is first I had to really understand memory and timing, right? To write optimized code, you literally had to know how long it took for a process to execute at the CPU level so that you could time and pack and optimize the code. But the other thing is, we had a lot of tricks that we exploited the hardware to do things it wasn't supposed to do. And that really taught me not to necessarily trust the documentation at face value, right? To experiment Mm -hmm. and explore with platforms. So that was my early introduction. I revisited programming quite a bit in high school where I was introduced to Pascal and Fortran and C and C++. actually got really into C++. Uh, One of the probably most interesting programs I wrote was for a thesis. I could either write an essay for a thesis or I could write a software program. So I went the software program route (laughs) and wrote sort of a compression routine. I, I researched the Huffman encoding algorithm and wrote my own routine. Now it was Probably about 10 times less efficient than zip and took about 50 times as long, but it actually worked and it compressed text and text came back out. And then ironically, you know, the third phase that was really my professional phase, I I didn't graduate college. I dropped out and got a lot of odd jobs. I worked at fast food restaurants. I worked Mm -hmm. in clothing stores. I worked at a pool hall for a year and just got, you know, thrown a little bit of cash every day for that, and I started a job as a customer service representative speaking Spanish of all things. So it was the topic I least liked in high school because it had nothing to do with computers. But what it did was got me into this role on a mainframe computer that I started to learn the software we were using, Mm -hmm. which eventually got me into a job as a night shift operator at this insurance company, and we had this shift that was, you know, throughout the evening, and I would get my jobs done pretty quickly so I could use the balance of time to learn how to program the thing and basically work my way into the, <laughs> the programming staff there. So started, you know, on, on personal computers that were, you know, measured in megahertz, not even mm-hmm. gigahertz speed, and uh, then jumped into my professional career starting out on, on mid-range and mainframe computers.
0: That's amazing. And when I was saying the TI computer was old, uh, just to give some people some context, most people are aware of the TRS-80. Um, the, the TI computer predated that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, it did. Uh, 32 columns of glorious text.
0: Yep. Yeah, and yeah, they used to put out magazines that would, <laughs> you'd have to type in the the, the program by hand. I mean, I <laughs> just... Yeah. Yeah, crazy stuff. Um, But yeah, it, it's funny because... So many people, they they get this idea in their head that, oh, you have to be some uh, CS major, you know, genius guy in order to write the code and get a job at a place like Microsoft. And all the people I talk to that just turns out not to be true. And
1: yeah, it was uh, fortunate that, you know, a lot of people told me when I, I did not continue my college path, we'll call it that. That uh, you know, I didn't have much to look forward to, and I, I decided to ignore them and mm-hmm. and go after what I was as passionate about, and it worked out. So,
0: yeah, and yeah, I mean, we we see people now coming in from accounting and journalism and biology, and I mean, I know people from all of these fields that are kind of having a second career in coding.
1: Yeah, and... it's amazing to see. It's it's powerful that. So many different backgrounds and experiences can happen. I mean, we have people on our team, Ashley McNamara, to do some more name dropping. Mm-hmm. She started her career as an adult with programming, and she's very well known and, and popular in the open source community. So it, it just shows it's, it's all possible.
0: Yeah, I just I wind up talking to a lot of people who are trying to come in and they're like, well, what do I do if I don't have a CS degree? And I'm like, you fit in. That's what you do. <laughs> you know, you just work hard and learn the stuff and you do it. And whether that's, you know, finding a few minutes here or there at the company you're working for to go hack on the mainframe or something else, I mean, you you find a way, right? And yep. these companies out there, I mean, and then there's so many companies out there that are just desperate for people. And they don't care if you have a degree, as long as you can do the job. And so right. all you really need is you need enough, stuff out there to get their attention so that they'll bring you in for an interview and then be able to describe how you're going to solve their problems.
1: Yeah. And I would argue now is even, I'm not going to say easy because everyone earns where where they're at, but the platform to engage and be able to do something like on your own time, contribute to open source and create a portfolio or a body of work, it seems to open a lot more pathways for Mm -hmm. people to bring something to the table and show, look, this is something tangible that I did as opposed to, you know, bringing in a floppy disk and kind of here's a little side project I did. People can make meaningful contributions to projects that are used around the world and, and they don't have to be in a current role or position or job to be a part of that, which is to me incredible.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is I've seen people who become, Core contributors to some of these larger projects they started out as a brand new programmer contributing to the documentation and then they effectively got the commit bit because the documentation was part of the you know the code base right and after a while they were contributing code and there really wasn't anything that special about them they they just got up and took advantage of an opportunity that they saw exactly so so yeah, I mean I, I kind of belabored <laughs> belabor this point a lot on this show because, you know, these stories overwhelmingly I mean I do get people who, you know, I had a computer when I was six and you know, and then I, I, I just knew and so I went and got a computer science degree. But that that is the rarity. Um there are many, many more people that I've been talking to who have made huge contributions to the open source community that don't have a degree and you know, they they just got involved because they liked it, and that I mean that's pretty much the whole story. Yeah. So, anyway, how did you how did you go from that to uh, JavaScript? So it
1: was an interesting path. It, it was funny. the The brief time I had at college was in 1993, and that's where I discovered the internet, mm-hmm. and it just blew my mind because unlike services that you paid for to have limited access. You know, they had AOL, they had MSDN, they had a lot of different, or MSN, I should say, a lot of different networks at the time. This was completely open. You could connect to computers everywhere. So I had that sort of internet bug in my system. And when I went to work for a company here in the Atlanta area, I moved from Florida to Atlanta to further my career, was still working on mid-range, But found out in the late 90s, which was before a lot of people were doing things commercially on the web, this company decided to build an enterprise application to connect suppliers and wholesalers and retailers together, Mm -hmm. leveraging the web. So when I found out about that, I had to transfer to that team. I I was leading a team in mid-range. I said, you can demote me, make me just a, a grunt programmer on the team. Please don't tweak my salary. But everything else, you know. Whatever, but I I want to be a part of that team, so I moved over, and uh, I was fortunate because this was a, a cutting edge product, and even though it was early in the day, it's amazing how how the principles are are still you know the same today. We had a, a great architect, and he designed this system that basically was based on what we would call today like an interior web API. We were using COM objects on a server and VB6 and and a lot of other things, but ultimately in the browser. We were using JavaScript to take forms, package them as XML, and post them so that the payloads being posted look no different from the browser as they would another mm-hmm. machine, for example, posting information. And that really started my path down web development 20 years ago and and having understanding this concept of of the web is not just about the browser talking to the server but it's really about all these conversations happening between different machines. So I I did that to start out with and after that pretty much my whole career after that focused on web apps. I was fortunate to be in a startup. I mean it's funny there's this period between the late 90s and early aughts, you know 2006 or 7 before jQuery came along that we were just pained by javascript. It, it was so painful to write it <laughs> yeah, for so many different browsers and jQuery really came along and normalized the Dom at the time I was working for another company here in Atlanta and we were doing mobile device management and mobile device management at that period of time really meant like Windows CE devices and every Mm. manufacturer had different settings, different protocols. So I had to come up with a system that could be extremely extensible. And so at the time, we thought XML would solve all the world's problems. So it was a, a system <laughs> that, that literally used XML to store attributes, used XSLT transformations. And all this was done with JavaScript to create these dynamic web-based UIs so that you could configure your mobile devices. And Wow. Yeah, so that that was um, exciting, and jQuery made that possible. And then I sort of drifted to Silverlight, and I won't spend too much time on that. I felt like that was going to be a platform that would be transformative. It had its day, and then it it spark burnt out. And I was a little bit disillusioned about the whole thing. Hey, i got to go back to JavaScript. But what I had found is in that period of time... JavaScript had evolved so tremendously, and there were so many more tools and frameworks and platforms. And really, ultimately, I went on this massive project that started out with JavaScript and Backbone JS. Six months in, the team sort of had this powwow meeting to figure out how we could accelerate delivery because, you know, it's, it's surprising. I know people don't have this happen on their projects, but for some reason, the customer wanted more faster. You know, it just... Seems seems to come up every once in a while. So we were looking at ways to do more faster and landed on Angular and TypeScript combination, spiked that, made a transformation, and saw velocity really improve about four times was our estimate mm-hmm. of the improved velocity with that combination. And so suddenly getting into data binding and being able to use declarative code to build UIs was when I realized, man, this this is for real now, this is where it's at. And I started to re-energize, so to speak, my focus on on JavaScript at that point, and that was probably around the 2009 2010 time frame. And I've been very heavily vested in that portion of the stack since.
0: Awesome. Very cool. So how do you how do you wind up going from being an expert in uh, Angular, and JavaScript, and you know building these web applications to Azure and um, you know, web web apps on Linux and all of this stuff. I mean, was it just an outgrowth of, hey, we got to deploy these things somehow? Or is there more to it than that?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, a really great point. So in, in my career, I've always been hands-on with the code. It's it's always been my passion. Uh-huh. So even when I was leading development teams, I was in the trenches writing code. But a, a big concern of mine uh, being in consulting for 10 years was value to the customer, right? So how can we create more with less and and not uh, reinvent the wheel and not have a lot of ritual and ceremony? And so what we call DevOps today was really a concern before we even gave it that label and its ease of use. and And so for me, that really meant moving from taking these awesome frameworks and libraries and having build scripts and being able to run automated testing to making it easier for customers to do this without having to stand up a ton of their own infrastructure. So shifting from the 10 years ago where we would say, okay, here, here's a document that has a specification of how many gigabytes of RAM and cores and disk space and everything for the servers you're going to spend $20,000 on to the mm-hmm. application, and then we'd always pad. A ton of of CPU and memory there because we weren't sure how it would actually scale. You know, to be able to move to from that to a cloud-based solution where, you know, the clouds evolved to the point that I mean all of the major cloud providers have these low entry point solutions where it's straightforward to spin up infrastructure to to run your tests, to deploy, to run your platforms. That is really what what caused me to to transform and segue into to the cloud and, um, you know, all about, you know, how easy is it to get from point A where we conceptualize a product to point B where the product's up and running and how do I do that in a way that's efficient and minimizes the cost to the customer.
0: Right. So how how has your learning changed as you've become more of a developer advocate around Azure as opposed to a full-time on a single project or you know (laughs) multiple projects on in a company some companies run things differently but how does how has that changed from being a corporate software developer focused on a single product or suite of products to uh, develop developer advocacy for a cloud platform
1: So it's, it's been an interesting transition. I mean, my biggest fear was getting out of touch with the realities of day to day. There's just certain things you don't learn mm-hmm. until you're responsible for a massive project that has millions of concurrent users and yep. and pet, petabytes of data. You know, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but I mean, when you work on big projects, you get burned, you learn things, and you find efficiencies that aren't necessarily in the how-to documents. Right. So in shifting to cloud developer advocacy, I've, I've done a couple of things. First off, there's a lot of pros. It's It's given me an avenue to really dive into deep into a lot of areas that I wouldn't have been able to look at. And and it's kind of a chicken and the egg, right? Because in consulting, you go where the the customer wants you to. But the, the, the pro is that you become an expert at those areas, and so you can go with confidence. The con is I'll use SQL Server as an example. So many people know and are comfortable with SQL Server. They don't necessarily understand what it's like to stand up an enterprise NoSQL solution, whether it's a MongoDB or CouchDB Mm -hmm. or Redis or CosmosDB or any of the the solutions out there. So they're going to lean on what they know. Coming to advocacy, I can delve into those other areas and learn a lot more about them. And so I have a broader palette to choose from, and I can better understand the pros and cons. But I also... You know, it's actually been great because I've increased my networking. I'd say tenfold because I stay in touch with the consultants and the the people in the trenches in the field because I still want to understand those challenges. And and so it shifted from being able to have you know deeper knowledge in a broader spectrum of areas. But then also tempering that with uh, staying in touch with you know associates, friends, coworkers, people mm-hmm. on social media, that that are in the trenches to understand what those issues are. And that's it's interesting because we really talk about three areas in advocacy: it's community, that's being out there with the user groups, meeting developers where they're at, and helping solve problems with the developers' content. So producing the content developers need to get online with new technologies and understand how to use them, and then this connection with engineering, which is the important closed loop. you know for example, we talked about web app out on Linux, and that's uh, designed to create a seamless deployment, for example, of node.js to the cloud. Uh-huh. Well, there were you know some challenges, all technologies have those, and when we found challenges in that process, we had a super tight loop. You talked about John Papa. I mean, he was tightly integrated with the product team to bring back from the community, the challenges and issues they were facing and, and to get those corrections in place. So to me, it's rewarding because it amplifies how many developers I can reach and, and empower. And um, at the same time, like I said, spend time to focus on a, a broader spectrum of solutions, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, that completely makes sense. I have a few friends that are out there, you know, as, as a developer evangelists or developer advocates. And it's, I mean, depending on the company and depending on the role that they play, you know, whether they're out there showing people how to use the product, or whether or not they're bringing feedback back to the uh, development teams, it, it's an important role that's played in, in our communities. And it's funny, too, because a lot of people are like, well, I'm not using Azure, so why should I care? And the answer is, is, Um, And and this is something that I'm just going to throw out as an example. I was talking to Donovan this morning, and he mentioned Visual Studio Team Services. And I'd heard about it, and I'd kind of thought about checking it out. But, uh, you know, I was like, I want to pay for this big enterprise thingy for my projects. And he was like, oh, well, you know, you can sign up and get five users for free. And so I'm looking at it, and I've been trying to build this infrastructure with myself with GitLab and things like that. And I'm looking at this, and I'm going, oh, I can get started for free, and have all these tools basically built for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, that that's amazing you brought up that specific example because at my last consulting company, I would say 90% of our customers were on VSTS. Not because of inherent bias, but because of, I mean, obviously we're biased using it a lot, but it was mainly because of the low cost entry. Either they were small and they yeah. could get by on the five free licenses, or they were enterprise and already had agreements with Microsoft that secured them seats at the table with VSTS. So it yeah. wasn't extra and it it was an easy path i mean ironically one of my biggest projects i worked on was an angular project that was running on aws but the entire devops pipeline was in visual studio team services <laughs> awesome so we'd build test and and um you, you know everything through that track work items the the whole lifecycle but the end step was an automated deployment managed by vsts to deploy the database and and the web assets and the APIs out to the, the AWS infrastructure.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that also just speaks to a lot of this where everybody's kind of team players, I guess for lack of a better term, right? Where right. you you can do it however you want. And if we've got the tool that's going to make it easier, off we go. And if not, then go use somebody else. You know, go go find it, whatever works for you. And it's anyway, I it's funny because I remember that I mean, back in the day, I was actually a Windows sysadmin, and a lot of that just felt kind of as a closed system. And it's so not that way anymore, especially for developers.
1: Yeah, I I agree 100%. It was like opening a a chest with gold inside sometimes when I, oh, yeah, we're familiar with TFS. I'm like, no, you haven't seen where VSTS has evolved. Let me Mm -hmm. just show you. Let's just spend 20 minutes, and nine times out of ten, that would turn into... Let's come back and spend a couple hours and and segue (laughs) from from there. And and it gets back to what I talked about earlier, just making developers' lives easier and and making customers' lives more efficient and maximizing that value that they have.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So um, the next thing that I'm wondering is, uh, what have you contributed to the open source community or to the JavaScript community that you're most proud of? Have (laughs) we already talked about it or is there something else?
1: No, there's, uh, it's interesting because I have JavaScript contributions. It's, uh, you know, uh, open source is a, a funny thing. It's been around a lot longer than I think people recognize. Mm-hmm. Even back in the Commodore 64 days, we leveraged tools that would compress code and, and combine software and fast load and everything that were just put out there by the community. We used phones and modems and BBSs instead of the you know GitHub. But uh, so so I talk about that because uh, you know the first when I really think about an open source project I worked on was a game,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was in uh, 1997. Quake was out, and a team contacted me to be a programmer for a total modification that would convert it to what we called SWAT Quake. And so it was this whole setup where there'd be a fugitive in a prison compound trying to break out, and then there'd be SWAT teams trying to contain them. And so I'm no artist. There were modelers and map designers, but I did all the coding algorithms, things like you know, gravity for climbing walls and taser functionality and, and everything else. And it was uh, just released as a, a free game to the Quake community. But I look back on that, and that was 20 years ago, right? But we mm-hmm. were collaborating online. I never once met anyone in person who was on my team and we got that out to to a ton of people you know the i guess the more business focused contributions around 2010 when i was in the heavy silverlight phase i wrote one of the first databases available for silverlight it was called sterling and it was an object oriented database and it was really to make certain scenarios easy for serialization deserialization to persistent storage so that contribution in jounce which was like a you know it's like what angular is to javascript jounce uh-huh. was to to silverlight apps was uh, these were back in the days of codeplex if if you've ever landed on a codeplex property but it was pre pre github and i was reflecting on these earlier because codeplex was shutting down so i actually migrated these projects over to to GitHub, but that was when I was most active in the community because there were problems to solve and no one had had solved them yet. Mm-hmm. In the JavaScript side, I found that a lot of times, most of the frameworks and things we plugged into our projects inside the four walls of the enterprise, if we made customizations for whatever reason, um, you know, there were some draconian views of open source back in the day. It mm-hmm. was sort of like, we're going to bring it in here and wrap our arms around it. So we didn't release that. But I started doing a lot of what I'll call educational contributions. And so that was like, a, for example, I created an Angular health app. So mm-hmm. I wanted to show how to build a sample app that would you know, track, you'd input your height, weight, age. It would do BMR, BMI, all these different attributes, right? right. But the, the cool thing that I got to do with that app is I wrote an Angular 1 I migrated it to Angular 2. Mm-hmm. I wrote it in Angular and JavaScript. I wrote it in Angular and TypeScript. And I wrote it in Angular. And I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong. Babel or Babel, however you want. I've heard it both ways.
0: Uh, I've met two of the maintainers. It's Babel.
1: Okay, so Babel. <laughs> that's I've been saying it right. I've, I've had people correct me and say Babel. So, so that was fun. I did an adventure game to demonstrate Angular and Redux. So that's uh, called Redux Adventure. I wrote a 6502 emulator, again, to, to teach Angular. If you look at what would actually be integrated into someone's project, though, back in the Angular 1 days, I had a project called Corlate. That's Q-O-R-L-A-T-E, mm-hmm. which is a way of aggregating promises. So it solved problems like when you had a controller that had to make a couple asynchronous requests that for whatever reason you need to initialize before you did other work, this would make a really easy format for that. It also let you plug in things like SignalR for real-time communications. You would go off a single promise, but that promise would fire multiple times every time that SignalR came in. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, big on Angular 2. The RxJS support sort of obfuscated the need for that right. in Angular 2. And then another project I have that's a small project, but it's, you know, used here and there is called micro locator. And it's a really simple service locator. It goes on this concept that when I'm building an app that talks to API endpoints, let's get away from this. We have this one URL that's a constant global throughout the app on the endpoint, because what happens down the road when we want to split our APIs across two domains? Right right now we have to find all the code. So it's no longer good enough to just say, my web API endpoint, especially as people migrate to microservices. So this is sort of a rules-based service discovery that says, you know, my default might be this domain, but then if you're asking for this specific asset, redirect to this domain, or even, you know, redirect parts of the path and, and whatnot. So, so those are, are my main ones. I did a little um, dependency injection engine as well, but that was more just to teach <laughs> dependency injection than, than to use it. So I've been active. And if you look at my my GitHub repo, I think I'm at about 70 repositories. And I'd say 60 of them are probably projects I created just out of the spirit of teaching and you know, combining with presentations to show people how to, to work with it.
0: Awesome. That's really cool. We'll have to get you on Adventures in Angular so you can uh, share some of the stuff that you've done there.
1: Sure. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I've... Yeah, huge, huge fan of, of Angular. It was, um, it, it clicked in so many different ways with my background, dealing with, with other software outside of, of the Angular universe and how to address things. And really tamed what I felt were the big challenges with doing JavaScript mm-hmm. on either big projects and or with big teams.
0: Yeah. yeah, it definitely solved some of those issues for me, too. Let's go ahead and keep going. Um, the next question that I have is, what are you working on today?
1: yeah I'm working on a, a ton of things. Um, uh, basically, we have a little bit of a slow period over the holidays, mm-hmm. and so I'm not preparing talks and and whatnot. so i I'm working on an ebook that is uh, architecture approaches to serverless that um, you, you know talking about uh, obviously, I'll have specific examples in Azure, but it's really looking at it, comparing it to different types of approaches and and architecture. So that's I'm, I'm really passionate about serverless and what it can do. And and again, not as a hammer Mm -hmm. that solves every problem, but when you understand the the right problems. So I'm working on that. I've got a open source project that's a link shortener, and this is a full stack project. So it uses serverless and table storage in Azure to give you a link shortening utility like Bitly or Mm -hmm. what Twitter does with the advantage that because you own it and then slap it to your domain, it it accumulates back in metrics. So you can look at things like what time of day do people click on things? What are the most popular domains? What kind of keywords, et cetera? And that was interesting because I wanted a really simple front end for you to put in the long URL mm-hmm. and be able to convert it to short. So I used Vue.js for that. It was my first Vue project. And I can see where it's gaining popularity because it was a lot less overhead and a lot easier for me to stand up a, a simple, small app with that than it would have with some of the other frameworks out there. So, so that's available on my my GitHub. And then really just preparing for talks. My first um, presentation of the year is going to be an introduction to TypeScript at a, a local user group. So I'm excited about just sharing some of the benefits of of that with a local JavaScript developer. So even though I'm on a cloud and .net team, I still, you know, focus on um, where the community's at and what they're, they're interested in. So doing that and then preparing presentations for, um, kind of going global this year, that's another benefit of and my consulting job. I would take speaking gigs where we had presence and that was mm-hmm. in the Southeast United States. Now I have the opportunity to go all over the world and, uh, I'm taking advantage of it. Very excited about it.
0: Very cool. Yeah, the travel is fun, isn't it?
1: It, it is. Uh, too too much can, yeah. can get to be a little <laughs> crazy, but I just had uh, my my last child left for college, so we're empty nesters, and, and my wife can tag along on some of the trips, so, so it's oh, all good. There you go.
0: Cool. Well, the last thing that we do on the show is picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? Once again, for a thirty-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com/devchat and enter devchat in the "How did you hear about us?" section.
1: Uh, I do. I'll actually, I actually I have two picks, and then I, I guess I'll call it a, a plug, but it's it's a pick and a, a plug. But uh, Twitter.net is a, a pick for basically consuming a ton of time. Not sure if you've heard of it. It's Twitter, but with a D instead of a T. T.net. Mm-hmm. net. And it's basically JavaScript in 140 characters or less. They give you a a short alias for the canvas and for some functions like cosine and sine. And in 140 characters, you build a uh, design. And there are people who have built three-dimensional landscapes that are shaded landscapes. There are people who have built black holes, vortexes, tunnels. I mean, it's incredible. And uh, there's this concept called golfing code, which is like using tricks and and techniques to shrink your code to as small as as possible, which is obviously something going back to my personal computer days, uh, you know, Commodore 64, I'm passionate about. So that's exciting. So Twitter.net. The other is a documentary a friend of mine is making. It's Hello World Film. So if you go to HelloWorldFilm.com, that is a documentary about developers, and he's going around interviewing developers. His goal is is really, as he shared it with me, to take people who aren't developers and help them understand what programming is all about. But he's also focusing a lot on some of the challenges we face and some of the awareness that has come in around diversity, around women in technology. So I'm very excited about that documentary. And then my plug is just going to be a simple link, aka.ms slash node hyphen dev, aka.ms slash node-dev. That is the documentation for Node.js on Azure. What's interesting about that documentation for anyone who's interested in it is our documentation system itself is a massive open source project. So I've done tons of contributions to that project as as part of the, the work I do. It's all Markdown. down. There's a custom build system, transforms it into pages. But What's really cool is a Node developer can come onto the site, look at a piece of documentation, say, hey, this isn't working the way I want it, or I have a suggestion, and submit a pull request to update the documentation.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and just throw out uh, one pick really quick. Um, I I don't don't have a whole lot of time to get creative, unfortunately, Um, and that's scheduling on my part, and it's my fault, but... Um, my calendar app on my Mac is something that I really enjoy, uh, using. It just, it makes things really simple and I can type in, in regular language, what I want. So I want an appointment on January, whatever at this time. Um, if it's Pacific time, I can put that in and it'll put it in the right time, mountain time. Um, it's busy cow. And so, um, if you're, if you're liking that, then do that. And, uh, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, go check out all of, uh, Jeremy's stuff. Jeremy, are you on Twitter or do you have a, a, a blog where people can follow other stuff you're doing?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter with the very unique uh, Twitter handle, at Jeremy Lickness. And that's uh, no spaces or underscores. My last name is like, it's like Lickness without the E or Lickness without the C, but it's L I K N E S S. So at Jeremy Lickness is my Twitter. And then my blog is also very uh, creatively named blog.jeremylickness.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you for coming and sharing your expertise with us and helping us tell your story.
1: My pleasure. Appreciate the invite.
0: No problem. All right, folks, we'll wrap this one up and we will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.